Good morning and happy Sabbath to you all. I'm reading from the New International Version, and this is Romans 15, 13. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace as you trust in him, so that you may overflow with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. There was a little boy who was asked to play a part in the church nativity Christmas program. He and his mother rehearsed his lines again and again. It is I, don't be afraid. It is I, don't be afraid. But when the night came and the Christmas pageant began, He walked onto the stage, he saw the lights and the audience out there, and he froze, could not say those words. And after a very long, awkward silence, he finally proclaimed, it's me, and I'm scared. And in many ways, That's exactly the sentiment that I hear during this season. Instead of angels saying, don't be afraid, we're saying, I'm scared. I am afraid. Afraid of another lockdown. Afraid of a new variant of this coronavirus that could start the whole process all over again. My sweet and beautiful 24-year-old that was home over Thanksgiving was expressing to her father how everything just feels frightening right now. That she worries about our country and she worries about her health and she lives in Portland so her safety isn't even in question. We are in a really tough time, a tough season of Earth's history. And if this fourth day of December 2021 doesn't leave you just a little bit concerned, you're not paying attention. But how do we respond to that fear that wells up in place of hope and peace and joy? We are seeing the prophecy of Luke 21, verses 10 and 11, fulfilled in real time as we read the news. Nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be great earthquakes, famines, and pestilences. Wow, that's a big word. I think we know what it means now. In various places and fearful events and great signs from the heaven. If we need read the news about that Omicron variant and you want to say, no, God, no, we've had enough, enough, please make this go away. There's a beautiful little second grader in Greg Resick's classroom at Cedarbrook, and every time I take prayer requests, she has two. The first is make the coronavirus go away and that Jesus will come back now. And of those two, which is the most important? 
that Jesus will come back now. And, and I just love this little girl. And I just, whenever we're praying for those things, I think about it. But what is equally concerning to me is world hunger. Because world hunger promotes violence. And often the places that are hungry, it's because there is violence. And it's very hard. After decades of decline, we're moving the right direction with world hunger. Now the global prevalence of undernourishment is increasing, not decreasing. Africa, south of the Sahara, and South Asia are the world regions where the hunger levels are the highest. And it's considered very serious. Dozens of countries now suffer from hunger. According to the 2021 Global Hun Hunger Index provi and provisional designations, hunger is considered extremely alarming in Somalia and alarming in nine other countries, and serious in 37. And so when Jesus said famine, he wasn't kidding. It's here. It's difficult to be optimistic about hunger in 2021. Among the most powerful and toxic of these forces, driving hunger is conflict, where we may have food, but we can't get it to the people who need food to eat. So we have conflict, climate change, and COVID-19 that just seem to be making life difficult on all counts. Violent conflict is deeply intertwined with hunger, and it seems like there's no sign of it abating and there being peace on earth. And so it says in Luke 21, on earth, the nations will be in anguish and perplexity. Men will faint from terror, apprehensive at what of what is coming on the world. But don't stop reading there, because there's more. There is good news. The next verse tells us the rest of the story. At that time, they will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. And when these things start to take place, stand up and lift up your hands and your head because redemption draws nigh. This is the good news, that we must finish the story and not just focus on the bad news, but to know that Jesus truly is coming back. My friends, in another dark winter, again filled with pandemic news, I have come this morning to give some very wonderful news. We know the end of the story. Several years ago, Mark and I watched the movie Argo. Anybody watch Argo? Oh, just one or two here. It's from 2012, so maybe your memories don't just go back that far. Argo is based on a true story. It is a thriller, grippingly told, and it won the best picture of 2012. On November 4, 1979, Iranian revolutionaries stormed the United States Embassy in Tehran in retaliation 
for Jimmy Carter giving the Shah of Iran asylum in the US because he had cancer and needed medical care. 66 of the embassy staff were taken as hostages, but six of that staff escaped. They avoided capture, and they were sheltered in the home of the Canadian ambassador, whose name was Ken Taylor. With the escapee situation kept secret, the US State Department began to explore options of getting those people out to exfiltrate them from Iran. Tony Mendez, who was a United States CIA exfiltration specialist, was brought in for a consultation. He criticized the proposals, but he did not have a better idea when asked for an alternative. But later that week, he was inspired from a very unusual source. He was watching Battle for the Planet of the Apes. And as he watched it, he began the plan of creating a cover score story to get the escapees out. They would all be Canadian filmmakers who were in Iran scouting exotic locations for a science fiction film. Mendez contacted John Chambers, a Hollywood makeup artist who also had worked for the CIA. Chambers put Mendez in touch with the film producer Lester Seigel, and together they set up a phony film production company, publicized their plans, and successfully established the pretense of developing Argo, a science fantasy adventure in the style of Star Wars to lend the cover story credibility. They had the posters made and hanging. Meanwhile, though, the escapees were still in that embassy and growing restless. How would you like to be there? Trapped and not knowing if you'd ever make it home. And at the same time, the revolutionaries began to reassemble embassy photographs and they realized that they didn't have all of them, that there were some embassy employees at large somehow there in Tehran. So Mendez posed as a producer for Argo, and he enters Iran after the, under the alias Kevin Harkins, and he goes to the home of the six escapees. And his first task is to even convince them that he can get them out. They don't believe he can do it. He provides them with Canadian passports with their pictures and fake identities. And eventually they reluctantly go along because they realize he's risking his life as well as theirs. Mendez is told the operation has been canceled in favor of a planned military rescue of the hostages. The government does that from time to time, doesn't it? It changes its mind about what the best plan is going to be. He pushes ahead anyway. Mendez forces his boss, Jack O'Donnell, to hastily reobtain authorization for the mission and to rebook their canceled tickets on a Swiss Air flight. They make it to the airport 
where the escapees' new tickets are not there, are not ready, and, and they have to be confirmed, and the tension is just really, like, gut-wrenching. And then the head guards call that fake production company in Hollywood, and there's no one on the other end of the line to confirm that it really is true. So they board the plane, and they're about ready to take off when the airport authorities are told that these are Americans, that these were embassy workers, and they try to stop the plane just as it's taking off. But the plane makes it, and off they go. To protect the hostages that remain in Tehran, all the U.S. involvement about this rescue is suppressed. Nobody hears about it. Did any of you hear about it? No. We were all around in 1971, right? Some of us, maybe, we weren't very old, but... And the full credit is given to the Canadian government and its ambassador. The true story wasn't declassified until 1997. And as the final credits of this film roll, the voice of Jimmy Carter is heard commenting about the success of the operation. And when we finished watching the movie, I turned to Mark and said, that is a gospel story. All good stories echo the story of Jesus. All good stories, you can find threads in them that reflect what Jesus has done. We were held hostage behind enemy lines. Do you believe that this morning? That you're hostage behind enemy lines? We are hopelessly trapped and in imminent danger. Not only does Jesus have to enter enemy territory on planet Earth, he has to risk his own life. He has to convince us to trust him. And sometimes that's the hardest thing of all. He has to become a vulnerable fetus, completely dependent on the choices of a young Jewish girl. He needs his diapers changed. And with the legions of hell focused on taking him down, getting him to sin, or snuffing out his life before he can ransom us, he breathes our air and walks our sod. And slowly through the 33 years of his life, he proves his divine identity repeatedly because he is always obedient and he's always compassionate. And the signs and wonders that he, that he is able to perform at those last few years of his life are so necessary to convince us to believe him so we will follow him and be able to be led to safety. And finally, eventually, at seemingly the last moment possible, our story also will have an amazing, happy ending. We will be rescued out of captivity and taken safely to our true home. That's wonderful news. But to get from here to there, 
We need to follow his explicit instructions. We need to do what he says we need to do and say what he says we need to say. And we need to unflinchingly follow our fearless leader. We will be safe and we will be free. But not if we don't trust him and not if we don't follow. This is the story that Christians around the world will meditate upon for the next four weeks. The story of how the king and creator of the universe chose to be born as a tiny baby in Bethlehem. The risk that Jesus took demonstrates God's commitment. He will win this war and he will bring his captive people home. God is not going to abandon this mission because he's already invested so much in it. He gave us his only son. What Jesus began in Bethlehem, our salvation, will be successfully completed when he comes again. It is because of Bethlehem that we can see that the events we read about as our world convulses, that they're not random. They are moving in a very definite progression toward anarchy and chaos, violence and oppression. Our enemy is growing desperate. Remember that? And all the stuff that's happening right now in our own lives and in the lives of our country and in the life of the world. We have to know why. And I believe it's because our enemy is filled with fury and he knows his time is short. Praise God for that. His time is short. But God is not up there on his throne wringing his hands, right? He is at peace. He sees what's going on, and he knows the final outcome. He knows the end of the story that he has already accomplished for us on the cross. He knows the end of the story, and he knows that he has won that battle. He has won it for us. And God knows exactly how he is going to rescue us. He's got all the pieces in place. He has every detail already worked out. His part of the story is nailed down tight. He wins. The only thing he doesn't control is our choices. Will we follow him? Or will we self-medicate with all the ways we choose to do that? From internet to shopping, we self-medicate. We try to make our lives bearable and meaningful, but they still lack the hope and the purpose. Without hope, Life is hard, horribly hard. But with hope, we can endure almost anything if we know there's a reason for it, there's a purpose in it. And if we know that God 
is in control. First, let's define hope. According to the dictionary, hope is the feeling that the thing that you want can ultimately be obtained. So what is it that you are hoping for this Sabbath morning? What are you hoping for? Anybody out there hoping for the salvation of your children? Absolutely. Anyone out there hoping for a complete recovery from your medical challenges or the medical challenges of someone that you love dearly? Anyone hoping we won't have another lockdown? Anybody hoping that um, as we eat our meal today, the Omicron virus will be very far, far away? Even thought about that today? Anybody hoped? For safety, even in the here and now? Anyone hoping the Seahawks will go to the Super Bowl? Oh, sorry, that would be presumption. Anybody hoping for next year? Maybe next year, right? <laughs> Maybe next year. The quality of hope is determined not only by what you hope for, but by what you hope in. We hope for these things, but our true hope is in our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Hope is the belief that no matter how bad things are right now, ultimately events will turn out for the best. I had a friend who had a little magnet on her refrigerator. It said, in the end, everything will turn out all right. If it's not all right, it's not the end. Right? And so if you're in this moment of not all right today, remember it's not the end of the story. There's still more to come. Good things will happen. Our present troubles will be resolved. Things will get better. And our present troubles are described as temporary, momentary, in comparison with that glory that's coming, what's, what's coming in the, in the future. The truth will be known. Is that good news? And man, when I read the news, it just seems like everyone is lying. Everyone is lying. You can't figure out who's telling the truth because they're not. Our hope is that justice will prevail. It will when Jesus returns. Well, I could never hope for all these things if I did not hope in a divine intervention into my world and into my life. Hope assumes that that divine intervention is real, that God is powerful and that he cares. God has already proved these things. He is willing to intervene and get up to neck deep in our messy lives. And if you wonder about that, remember Bethlehem. Remember how messy that stable was with animal stuff, stinky animal stuff. And that's where Jesus and the Father decided that he would begin his life on earth. Jesus showed he is not afraid of messes because of Bethlehem. In his book, Reaching for the Invisible God, Philip Yancey says that a life of faith and perseverance 
consists of two virtues, patience and hope. When something comes along to test our relationship with God, we rely on patience and hope. Patience is formed by a long memory of what God has already done. And what has he already done? He took on human flesh. He lived a perfect life. He proved that he was God's son. And then he died in our place. Nothing can change those things that he has already done. So now we need to put our hope that he can get us through now to the end. That it will be worth the risk to believe that he can do what he says he can do. Christians have always believed in a God who is both good and faithful, controls the universe. Is it hard to, to believe that today? Or can you choose in your heart just to say, he is good and he is faithful? And patience and hope keep that faith alive during tough times. The tough times that some of us are experiencing at this very moment. One way of looking at it might be to say that the life of faith means that we live both in the past by what we know and believe that God has already done, and in the future because we extrapolate who he is and what he's like, and we know he doesn't ever fail. He's not going to fail again. We live in that past, remembering that we can have confidence in our future. We look forward to the second coming because we know he loves us because of Bethlehem. So 1 Peter 1.3 tells us to prepare our minds for action and be self-controlled. And then it says, set your hope fully on the grace to be given you when Jesus Christ is revealed. Let's look at this carefully. We are told to set our hope fully on what? Grace. We once had um, a woman tell Mark they were leaving our church and going across town to one that was more traditional, and she felt like we talked about grace too much. So she said to Mark, you can't live forever on grace alone. And first of all, Mark was kind of taken back, like, what? And then he went home and we thought about it, and he said, the only way you are going to live forever is on grace alone, right? Everything else we're trying to do is a dead end. If we make it ultimately, it's because of the grace given to us, right? The only way we will make it. And so it says, put your hope fully on grace. And then it defines what that grace is. The grace that will be given to you when Jesus Christ is revealed, when Jesus Christ comes back. It says, set your hope fully on it. So I can't set my hope in the stock market that my retirement investments stay secure. This has been a bad week for the stock market, by the way. But I can't put my hope in that. No, and I can't set my hope 
in science that those scientists that are just desperately now trying to figure out a vaccine that will stop Omicron. I can't set my hope in my vegan diet that if I eat these things, I will never, ever have chronic illness. I know what the odds are, and I'm better, but I can't set my hope in that. So where do we set our hope, according to this verse? The grace given to us when Jesus Christ comes back. That's what we hope in. We set our hopes that Jesus is going to intervene and stop the progression of history. Because no matter how closely that we've walked in his light, we're going to need grace on that day. And we will have grace on that day. And this is what I learned from Bethlehem. Because of Bethlehem, I know that God has goodwill toward men. Or the NIV says, his favor rests upon men. That Greek word means unmerited favor. Guess what? It's the same word for grace. So the whole story of Christmas is a story of grace, of what God gave us when we didn't deserve it. And if we have reserved, we have received that grace, we won't be calling for the rocks to fall on us at the end of time. What will we be doing instead? We'll be lifting up our head and saying, behold, this is our God. We have waited for him. Let us rejoice in God the Savior. Those are the two options when you see Jesus coming back. If you've received grace, you do not need to be afraid. We'll be singing, he is worthy. He is worthy. But back up to that very first phrase. What are we supposed to do? We're supposed to prepare our minds for action. Do you know that hope actually prepares us for action. It gives us something to do. Hope is not passively sitting around saying, I wish God would get with it. No, hope is saying, I can participate. I can make sure this hope is given to, to other people. I can expect that God will show up on planet Earth. And then Ephesians says, we are going to have our feet shod with the gospel of peace. Our, you know, it's like put on your shoes, put on hope that God is going to be with you on that day when you put your shoes on. This verse is saying, get ready. God is going to do something wonderful. God is going to be with you today. He's going to give you divine appointments with the people you need to talk to. It is our privilege to put on those feet that are shod with the gospel of peace. And then we turn to our scripture of the day. And I love this. I always have loved this verse. Romans 15, verse 13. It says, may the God of hope. Have you ever heard that as the descriptor for God? He's the God of hope. That means he has hope that the plan's going to work out. And he knows it, of course. But he also is the God who gives us hope. 
fill you with all joy and peace. That sounds like Christmas. As you trust in him. Okay? You only get the joy and peace when you trust in him. The joy and peace do not come apart from him. They come from trusting and knowing him personally. And then it says, the God of hope fills you with joy and peace. So where does joy, where, where did joy and peace come from? God fills us up with joy and peace. Man, we need that today, right? That's what I want in my stocking this year, is joy and peace. Right? That's what I want. And then it says, so that you may overflow with hope. Okay, now it's not just I have hope, but now I have so much hope that anybody who comes around me can tell that I have hope. That I see that even though we're on planet Earth in 2021, this is not the end of the story. That should be how I live my life is that it shows that I have hope. That's what I want is that it's overflowing. And when it overflows, where does it go? Where does that hope go? To anybody that's anywhere nearby, that hope should go. Into the hearts and minds of the people I hang out with. My hope should be contagious and overflowing onto you. And, you know, the psychologists say that your mood will mirror whoever's attitude is the strongest. So if you live with a pessimist, chances are you're going to have some bad days. But if you live with someone who's filled with hope, that can be the strongest dominant emotion. And you can share that hope. God calls us to walk with him to walk in his light so that we can be purveyors of hope to this dark world. That's our job. So our call to worship was from Isaiah chapter 2, verses 1 to 5. I studied this in depth, and there was way too much, and it was pretty heavy, and I just decided you all didn't need that today. You get that on a different Sabbath. But this is a prophecy from the book of Isaiah when the people long to know God and long to follow his ways. Okay, so Isaiah chapter 2, 1 through 5. It says, in the last days, do we live in the last days? Absolutely. In fact, the Bible describes the last days as, as any period past the cross are the last days. In the last days, the mountain of the Lord's temple will be established as the chief among the mountains. It will be the most important one. And then it says, it will be raised above the hills and all the nations will stream into it. They will be coming together. The, the walls between nations and classes and ethnicities are torn down and together they go streaming into the temple. Now the Romans 15 verse talked about overflowing with hope. Now this hope is so strong that it streams uphill. 
Instead of just overflowing downward, it's streaming upward into the temple of God that's on the top of the hill. And all the nations will stream into it. Okay, are we seeing this yet? You know, we're working on it. AWR is out there constantly beaming into places we can't go personally. And we have beautiful little Sarah who moved to a place where nobody believes, where she could be killed for helping someone to be converted. And she's just making friends. Amazing. But it gets even better because as they stream, they have something in mind. What are they wanting as they stream up the hill to God's temple? It says, he will teach us his ways. They want to know his ways that we may walk in his path. We want to live for him and with him. And then the next verse says that his law goes out from Zion and, and it's given to the world. And because they are teachable, he's able to be their judge and they accept his judgments. And that too has really not been going well in the US. The, the judgments that people give, everyone accepts. And it says because he is righteous, he will settle disputes for many people. Oh, our world needs this. They will abide by his righteous decisions. The result of letting God be their teacher, leader, and judge, that they will beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. So what do you think they're going to make out of F-111s? You know, we're not going to study war anymore, nor will they train for war anymore. Oh, that's what we long for, and that's what began at Bethlehem when that tiny little baby was called the Prince of Peace. Only Jesus can fulfill this prophecy, but because of Bethlehem, we can hope that this prophecy will be fulfilled. And then Isaiah finishes with an invitation. O come, O house of Jacob, let us walk in the light of the Lord. So, here's a picture. Go ahead, you can leave it back up. Go back, Sandy. This is at the United Nations. This man is nine feet tall, and it's a sword that's been turned into a plow. When instead of fighting, we're going to be worried about feeding the world. And it's really a beautiful, beautiful thing. In his autobiography, A Long Walk to Freedom, Nelson Mandela recalls the moment that he first laid eyes on his granddaughter. At that time, he was in a hard labor camp on Robben Island and in the most unbearable conditions. He was cutting lime in a quarry with the sun so bright that it made him blind. The only thing that kept the prisoners from despair, he writes, is that they sang together while they worked. And I heard that the seven dwarves did that too, right? They whistled while they worked. Try it when you really just can't work another step because you're so tired and so discouraged. Put a song in your heart. 
The songs reminded them of family and home and tribe outside the prison camp that they might forget otherwise. They kept their hope alive. And in the 14th year of his imprisonment, Mandela gained permission for his daughter to come and visit. It would be her first visit to him. He generally was not allowed any visitors. And on that afternoon, she ran across the room and embraced him. He had not seen her since she was a small child. Now she is a grown woman with a baby of her own. And as she handed over her newborn baby, Nelson's granddaughter, into his calloused, leathery hands, he wrote, to hold a newborn baby so vulnerable and soft in my hands, these hands that had too long held only picks and shovels, was profound joy. I don't think a man was ever happier to hold a baby than I was that day. Mandela's tribal culture had a tradition of letting the grandfather choose the baby's name. So now he is asked to hold this baby and decide what her name will be. And Nelson toyed with various names as he held her, and then he settled on Zaziwi. And what does Zaziwi mean? Hope. Zaziwi. The name had special meaning for me, he writes, for during all my years in prison, hope never left me, and it never would. I would, was convinced that this child would be part of a new generation of South Africans for whom apartheid would be a distant memory. That was my dream. As it turned out, Mandela had served barely half of his sentence. He would not gain his freedom for another 13 young, long years. But that vision of Zaziwi hope sustained him. Despite little evidence at the time, he believed that the wall of apartheid in South Africa would crumble. The time would come, he thought, not maybe in his lifetime, but then perhaps in his daughter's or his granddaughter's, when a new kind of justice would descend. Mandela's hope was laid not in the capriciousness of a human political system, and not what he could do by writing letters from prison, which was very little. He had very little um, influence at that point. His hope was laid up in God, from whom all true justice emanates, and that God would someday descend. So it might be tough for each of you right now, and if you had to say, you might say, it's me, and I'm afraid. I want to remind you that we have hope today. We have hope. We know how the story began. And we know how God intervened in Bethlehem. We know how God paid the price on the cross. And we know how the story ends. We know it. Jesus is coming soon. Not as a tiny baby, but as a victorious king. Set your hope fully on that day. And as you remember the sweet, comforting beauty of the Christmas story, 
Remember, it's that same God who has goodwill towards you that has the plan to come and get you and rescue you and get you safely home.